Coming up on today's show, people are loving Baldur's Gate 3. We played Lords of the Fallen, and we asked the president of the ESA about the future of E3. Good, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the What's Good Games podcast, your source for video game news, commentary, analysis, and funny stuff every Friday. I am one of your hosts, Andrea Renee, joined by Mrs. Rihanna Manuel Pena. Hello. Welcome back to uh, LA from the desert. Oh, thank you. I mean, same to you, madam. You were there as well. <laughs> and Brittany Brombacher is here as well. I wasn't in the desert because I've been no. struck by the COVID bitch again, friends. No, the Rona. The Rona got me. Thankfully, all things considered, it's been a pretty mild case, but it's trying to make a comeback. And I'm here to tell you, I'm going to smack that bitch upside the head. Yeah. We like you it. put her in her place. I'll try. I feel like this going to rear its ugly head this fall. Yeah. I think a lot of us have just been like, okay, I'm done with COVID and all of the quarantine and pandemic rigmarole. We're just going about our business and then we're all going to get like our booty spanked yep. by illness. Face the consequences <laughs> of our actions. Yes. <laughs> yes. But I'm glad that you're feeling better. And thank you so much for being on the show. We have so much to talk about this week, everybody. But before we do that, thank you to this month's Patreon producers, Chewie's Godson, Ferris Atia, Justin Foshi, and Punctified. And welcome to our Patreon community at patreon.com slash what's good games, Ronnie Sullivan, Josh Herrand, and Steve French. We appreciate your support. You can get a shout out on the show. You can be a producer. You can even get the show for ad free. You can listen to it without the ads. Doesn't that sound lovely? Speaking of ads, today's show is also brought to you by ExpressVPN, but we'll talk to you more about that in a little bit. Because right now, Brittany, ah! I <laughs> am passing the baton to you. I to will lead happily, us off I'll happily with grip the first that, new baby. story of the week. I'll grip it hard. <laughs> All right, so Baldur's Gate 3 is now one of the biggest Steam games ever. And this comes from IGN. Baldur's Gate 3's huge launch swelled over the weekend with the Dungeons and Dragons role-playing game breaking the 800,000 concurrent players barrier on August 6th. The peak concurrent count on Steam was 814,666, which puts Baldur's Gate 3 in ninth place in Steam's all-time concurrent players list. It's chasing down 8th place Hogwarts Legacy, 7th place Amazon New World, and 6th place from Softworld's Elden Ring. Mm. And then it goes on to say that it's really funny. So the founder, creative director, CEO, Swen Vinke, I think that's how you say his last name, he only told the IT department to anticipate 100,000 concurrent players. Sven, <laughs> you fucked up. Yeah, yeah, fucked up. You so fucked up. He tweeted, thank you everyone for all the love and support. It brought a tear to many eyes and it's incredibly motivating for all of us. We can't thank you enough. Aww. And I'm checking right now to see what the concurrent peak player, well, the concurrent for Baldur's Gate is 564,000 players as this, at this moment are playing Baldur's Gate 3 on PC. Wow. So this is incredible. Just, it's incredible. And it's, it's a really cool moment in time in the video game history. I mean, I don't think anyone quite anticipated this launch. And this is just PC, right? This is just Steam numbers we're talking about. Um, obviously, it's still coming to PS5, and I know it's on GOG as well. It's just really cool, too, because it also propelled the PS5 pre-orders. I don't know if this article talked about that. But essentially, for a brief moment, it was the number one pre-order on PSN. You know, in front of Spider-Man, in front of Madden, Mortal Kombat. And I know in the grand scheme of things, that doesn't mean a heck of a lot. But it was just 
still really like cool to see. And it just makes me so happy. I mean, this is just a really cool thing. This weekend when it had launched, I was in my cove cave quarantining from my husband and child, my little cove festering cave. cave. Oh, it's I got my air mattress. I got all my energy drinks. I got my blankets. It's a whole thing. And just reading all the tweets, just the, it's just one of those moments where I think everyone is going to remember this launch, especially if you're involved in, in the community of it. Just everyone's talking about it. Everyone's caving in. Everyone's buying a copy. Everyone's playing. And just because of the viral nature of this, this sort of game where everyone is tackling a solution differently, you know, so everyone's tweeting about it. Oh, you could do this. Oh, I did this. It's just really, really fun to see. And I'm just so so pleased for Larry. And I mean, this is what happens when you have 450 staff members who are like the best at what they do with six years of development time, you know, with incredible community support and three years of feedback via early access, you know, you just get a really, really cool product. And yeah, just really thrilled and happy for them. And apparently you get full frontal nudity, which is the thing that's all oh, yeah. in my timeline. Everyone's well, very excited about it. <laughs> as you should be. I mean, damn, have you seen these characters? They're all, even the, even the so-called ugly ones are hot. Like the weird ones with like all the like the green skin and shit. I'm like, ooh. So we talked about this briefly during your hands-on impressions. How do you think that this reaction from the gaming community at large is going to influence Game of the Year conversations or RPG of the Year conversations? I mean, we already knew that Baldur's Gate was in contention for both of those things, but I think Mm -hmm. people maybe put it a little bit further down the list from some other games that are already out and that are coming out. But I feel like now... You know, Larian's like, we here, let's go. <laughs> they are, and it makes me so happy. I mean, I've been such a fan of theirs for so long. And, you know, I just think a lot of that comes down to also the CEO again, Sven. He he is the dude, like the literal like head of the studio, studio but he's also wearing plate armor during their like kind of silly like live streams, right? Where they go over their panel from Hills. Like he's wearing the armor, he's hosting the events himself. He's doing all the behind the scenes demo. He's doing all the front facing stuff. And I think when you have someone like that, that. He's he's so charismatic and he's such a nice, funny, funny, down to earth guy. Heading the game, you're going to get incredible results because he just wants to see a really well done game made as well. So anywho, with all of that said, like I've said from the beginning, not the beginning, but recently, I think the RPG game of the year is going to come between Starfield and Baldur's Gate. I don't think any other game honestly stands a chance. Wow. I love Diablo 4. I love Final Fantasy 16. But I think these two games are just cream of the crop. And it's going to be really curious to see which one comes ahead because I I can't imagine Starfield having the same amount of player choice and consequence and the freedom that Baldur's Gate does. So I don't know. I mean, not every game has to be Baldur's Gate and that's a conversation for another time. But yeah, I mean, I think I can't see how this isn't a contender. I can't see how this... I don't think this is just a flash in a pan moment is what I'm trying to say. Because if you look at the concurrent players, even after that launch, it's still at 500,000. We'll see where it goes. I mean, the PlayStation version isn't even out yet. Yeah. I think this game's going to get a lot, a lot, a lot of nominations. I, I was worried that maybe because it's not the easiest game to pick up if you're not used to D&D roles. And even I am not someone who really knows D&D all that well, despite playing it like once a year for the past several years. But, you know, once you kind of learn it and it holds your hand getting into it, it does ease up and open up. And I think people are discovering that. And I think more people are going to start playing it. So I can only imagine that the word of mouth is going to spread even more, and especially as we get near the end of this year where game of the year conversations start to happen. So I better win something or I'm going to get mad. <laughs> it's going to so be, mad. it's going to be a tough year for, for every, for everybody. There's going to be a lot more losers than there are winners, unfortunately, but we aren't there yet. And we got another big Brit story this week as well. We Nintendo did. 
is like, yo, how about I just kind of like drop all this Pokemon news on you? <laughs> yeah. So Pokemon had a 35 minute Pokemon Presents this week. You know, I'll be honest, I didn't even bother to watch it when it first went live. I was like, I'll watch it later. You know, I blame COVID, but I wasn't expecting anything major. And while there wasn't a lot of like breaking news or what really wasn't that much at all, if any, it was still fun. It was still a lot of like, you know, cool, interesting content. So we'll just kind of run down this list real quick from IGN. So you have Pokemon Path to the Peak is a new animated series focused on the trading card game. So this is actually really cute. It's a new animated short series and it'll premiere at the Pokemon World Championships, which begins later this week. And so this actually follows a little girl. Well, maybe she's like middle schooler. Um, her name is Ava and she has a quote natural talent in Pokemon card playing you know, like actually competition you know like me I just collect for shits but like these people actually get super serious with this like card battling and whatnot anyway so she moves to a new school and she joins a competitive Pokemon card club called the Pokemon Club and maybe there's like a dozen or so members into it and it looks like she just kind of gets introduced to like-minded individuals that you know maybe love Pokemon just as much as she does and it just looks like a cute heartwarming warm and fuzzy little animated and I love the art style of it and it just looks adorable like this is something I definitely want to watch I think I'm more excited to watch this than I am the new animated series it's something different you know it just seems like it's something that would tap into that childhood imagination of battling your cards and imagining how the scenarios play out because the actually animate these battles I think as they're happening in the cards so it just looks really cute the next thing we got to look at was Detective Pikachu we got a new trailer introduced to some characters that'll appear alongside some gameplay and basically it comes out October 6th for the Nintendo Switch and this also looks really cute so obviously Pikachu is looking for his missing partner Harry and his current partner is Tim who is Harry's son that's what it is and the trailer just goes over people you're going to meet and it shows a little bit of gameplay of mystery solving you know the really cute things like you'll use a growlith to track suspects because they they're like little dog pokemon and they have like these they're just cute they have a nose everything has a nose they can use the nose to smell i digress actually ice cream pokemon probably don't have a nose anyway yeah and so it just looks different and you know i'm oddly very excited not oddly but i'm just really excited about playing this it looks like something different i never played detective pikachu back in the day it wasn't really my thing but now that i'm finding that like the huge RPG games maybe like aren't my thing right now with Pokemon and that makes me really sad to say something like this that lets me still be a part of the Pokemon world I think it kind of it kind of floats my boat a little more at the moment so I'm, I'm excited to check this out it just looks like a really cute something something to play the next thing that I want to talk about briefly is Pokemon Horizons this series so this is the new animated series that is coming and what's interesting about this is that this stars brand new set of characters cast of characters Liko and Roy and they join together with a group of adventurers and as the rising volt tacklers and so for the first time in pokemon anime history you have all new characters and a more linear plot and the series will take them from Kanto region to paldea region again like i love the pokemon anime growing up but i just don't know if i'll actually take the time to sit down and watch this but i'm glad it exists and it might be a really good jumping off point for people who never watched the rest of the anime back in the day because now ash is bye bye yeah. he's actually living his life other than that though i mean yeah you know, it was just, you know, they went over Pokemon Scarlet and Violet's DLC coming. There's a new animated web series coming. There's something Paldean wins and then there's Path to the Peak. And I'm not entirely sure what Paldean wins are, but that's another animated series. Oh, okay, yeah, this is another one about school because <laughs> I can't keep track of them. <laughs> so this depicts the youthful drama of students as they come into their own while they are in school, but they're maybe in there in high school or something. I don't know, but that's another web series that's coming. They're doing a whole bunch of shit except for actually making like high quality video games is what I'm trying to say. Burn. Well, Brittany, that was uh, <laughs> quite the recap. 
I, you know, there, and then there's drama. There's some drama friends because there's Ooh, a, you want to hear a little, like some drama. You want to hear a little silly drama. I mean, it's some really, poker drama. Let's yeah, go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's really fucking silly. So there's this Pokemon called Raikou and it's an electric dog Pokemon. I think it was in Pokemon Silver and Gold. And so there's something called a Paradox Farm, which quote, either makes the pocket monster look prehistoric or futuristic. But this guy is now based off alphabet brachiosaurus that's his paradox form and but he looks like a ginormous giraffe fucked a uh, tall neck in horizon and it's hideous and everyone's really really mad about it i think i linked it right here in the show notes if you want to take a look at what it Some looks like pokemon weeb drama everyone's that's, really mad about it it looks definitely like a tall neck yeah like a tall neck banged a giraffe and they had a baby. Like, why? Ew. Why on earth are people mad about the way Pokemon look? Are we really entertaining that? Do I need to pull up, like, dozens and dozens of examples of fucking buck wild Pokemon that <laughs> yes. are ridiculous and that shouldn't exist? And are like, hey, was the writer's team just... Like high in a room one day and spitball. They're like, hey, I went to the beach when I was a kid. Sandy guest. You know, like I don't like the <laughs> like, okay, you're mad about this. Yeah. This is the one that broke you. You know, I'm people kind of have like their things. It, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, yeah, it's Pokemon. People are gonna get mad. We also got a new candy apple Pokemon of uh, it's a new evolution of a little guy named Applin. He he evolves now to look like a candy apple. So cool. Like that's a thing they're doing. Um but like I know I made a jab at Pokemon earlier, but like, yo, like I'm glad they're I'm glad they're embracing the Pokemon universe, giving people that's three new little animated series. Cool, that's great. I just would, would like better games. That's all I say. That's all. So, so yeah. Much to, yeah, that's it. Pokemon. I don't think that that's too much to ask. Thanks. Just a little innovation goes a long way. Yeah, there's more, <laughs> but like you can read a recap. It's fine. We got more stuff to talk about. This is going to be a packed show, everybody. And because it's that time of the year when we always get the multiplayer gameplay reveal of Call of Duty, the biggest entertainment gaming franchise in the world. The first Call of Duty Modern Warfare 3 trailer has dropped, y'all, featuring the return of Makarov. First off, I think it's worth mentioning that, you know, it's just Modern Warfare 3, nothing crazy or different or wild happening. I think Activision is maybe understanding, like, maybe we don't need to, like, really change up the formula that much. The community seems to want what it wants and there's an ever-increasing diversity of live service games that are available. So it's kind of like, hey, if your audience likes a certain thing, maybe just give it to them. Sounds like a winning plan. So Rihanna, yeah. as one of our Call of Duty bays, yes. have you uh, checked this out? Do you have thoughts? I've checked it out. Um, I don't have many thoughts. Zooming out a little bit from the trailer, which is great. I think it's a fantastic trailer. I'm very glad that we're getting a direct sequel from Modern Warfare 2. I have nothing against Sledgehammer or Infinity Ward in the, you know, the rotation that they do every three years. But it's just nice to like continue on this path. Like, like let's continue the story. Let's remember who the hell anybody is mm -hmm. and, and just jump back into another sequence. So I'm 
pleased with this. I know not everybody is, but as an original Modern Warfare 2 fan, I'm very pleased that we're getting three. I think the trailer, going back into you know what we saw this week, looks fantastic. It's a lot of tease. Of course, we get little references to dogs and things that we are curious. Are, are they in the game in the same way they were before? And I just, I love seeing the evolution of the story and this modern era and like how they're going to bring it to life now that we're on the next generation of consoles or the current generation. So I'm thrilled. I can't wait to play this. I'm very, very excited. But I'm curious to know like what is going on with Black Ops like I really do want to know like at least a hint of a roadmap and I'm not to throw you know the the focus away from modern warfare but I love black ops I thought I think the zombies mode is always really interesting and lots of fun to play with friends and you know I'm always keen to see like what that one in particular is going to be doing next so yeah more call of duty I, I want it I'm on board. Yeah, to I- be inside warzone for the in-game reveal <sighs> yeah August event. 17th yes. is, is when we're gonna get I believe some some more gameplay details because this trailer obviously was just like mood setting. We didn't really yeah. get to see what the game is actually going to look like. They were teasing um, us with some stuff, but we didn't see it for a while. Yeah. And then the multiplayer beta isn't happening probably until closer to launch. I would guess sometime in October would be be the right uh, the right time for that. But November 10th is the release date. So sticking with that early November window, which seems to have been working pretty well for them. And uh, I, I want to believe, no, this is just an Andrea theory, that Infinity Ward is continuing on with this because from a production standpoint and a cost standpoint of making a video game, it you're not having to start over and make everything from scratch if you're just using some of the same character models, some of the same environments, same art, a lot of the same, like, I imagine a lot of the weapons they're reusing and things like that. And of course, there's going to be new things. But, you know, you look at what Treyarch might be doing. It's like maybe this gives Treyarch a nice chunk of time to actually do something very different. Either make, like, reinvent zombies or, you know, do some kind of a, a reboot of Black Ops. You know, who knows what they're working on. I think that is exciting, though, for fans of Call of Duty and for fans of this franchise and all of these studios. And there's been so many additional studios that work on Call of Duty now. It's no longer just about the big three, right? Raven's been around for a while. I th- just want to remind people that, like, there's, like, I think five or six different studios that work oh, on yeah. these games. And it's all like a collaborative process but when one ip kind of gets a multi-year release cycle it means the other studios have more time to innovate and do other cooler stuff so and the call of duty franchise has been a leader in innovation across the board both in technology and storytelling so i'm excited to see what they do next and how they're going to innovate on warzone you know once modern warfare 3 comes out so oh yeah let's carry over i would love to see a brand new ip from one of those developers that would be cool but <laughs> you know but it's not going to have the call of duty label on it so the executives bob at the top is it bob is he the one at the top yeah bob's in marketing Mar- bob's in marketing well bob would be a part of this too he'd be like what the fuck are you doing don't do that <laughs> we need the seo <laughs> yes. he would well, i mean the, the seo is strong with call of duty but i mean look at how well destiny did as an ip for activision yeah. alongside the biggest shooter in the world I mean, Destiny's turns out doing pretty good. And I think Activision is looking at, you know, their portfolio now and going, hey, you know, outside of Call of Duty, where are other like tentpole games? Obviously, you know, they've got they've been doing a lot of stuff with like the Crash franchise, you know, the Crash Bandicoot stuff. But I mean, I don't think anyone's looking at Crash Bandicoot and going, this is what's 
you know, paying the shareholder dividends, right? So eyes are peeled on what's next. What you working on? Something type secret? Something new? Something freshy fresh? Yeah. Tell us. Okay. Continuing on. In case you missed it, everybody, our friend Steve Spawn won an award. Yay! Just to give Britt a little moment before she goes into her Resident Evil news. Yes, Steve! Um, so, friend of the show, Stephen Spawn, who is the, well, I think his title is no longer COO. He told Senior me he has a different title. Senior Director of Development. Yes. Senior Director of Development at Able Gamers. Look at Rihanna, you already put it in there. Won <laughs> an award. The award is called the Tempest Sentinel Award. And apparently... Other people have won this award, like Dr. Lupo, who I got to meet at the Games for Change Awards, which was pretty cool. Oh, also, he just little... had a really great time uh, raising, I think, $1.8 million for St. Jude at GCX over the weekend. So congrats, Dr. Lupo. Congrats, GCX. Just a tiny bit of money. Yeah. It's so wonderful to see people doing good. I love that. So this bullet point, where did this bullet point come from? Just from their press release? Yeah, press release. It says, as the Senior Director of Development at Able Gamers, Stephen collaborates with game devs, influencers, and celebrities, us, obviously. Obviously. Uh, <laughs> to make gaming more accessible through the development of equipment programs and services to decrease the social social isolation and improve the overall quality of life for millions of disabled players around the world. His vision is straightforward yet powerful. Gaming should be for all. Congratulations, friend. We're so Yay. happy for you. Now, Brittany, hmm? for some Resident Evil 2 remake stats. Where did this come from? It came from the heavens above, Andrea. Obviously. <laughs> Silly so this comes from. Uh, it's okay. I'll let it slide. So this comes from Eurogamer. Resident Evil 2 Remake is now the best-selling game in the series. And Eurogamer writes, For a long time, Resident Evil 7 was the top Resident Evil game, but it's now been overtaken. Resident Evil 2 Remake has sold 12.6 million units to Resident Evil 7's 12.4 million units. Hmm. Resident Evil remains Capcom's top franchise with 100 146 million units sold across all games. Wow, congrats. You know, I just would like to take a moment to one Paris who has been on the record for saying Resident Evil is mid. I don't know how you look at numbers like this and say it's mid. You know what's the only thing that's mid Paris is your take on video games. Okay? Ooh. Okay? Ooh. Ooh. I love it! The spice. I said what I said. Alright? I've even heard you talk shit about The Legend of Zelda before as well. I've heard it. You know what? Banjo-Kazooie released in 1998 to 3.5 million units sold. Ocarina of Time released that same year, 7.5 million units sold. It's almost like it's twice as good, Paris. <laughs> okay, Tell him, Brett, all. get him. Cheers, motherfucker. <laughs> I love it. Well, congrats to all the people at Capcom yeah. um, for some fantastic numbers. Still have to play... Uh, Still have to play for, for remake. remake. Haven't done it yet. Yeah, it's, it's... Am I putting it off because of fear? Maybe. Who could say? <laughs> Who could say? Fear or just maybe the overabundance of video games at our disposal in this very moment in our lives. Yes. Okay. That. I do appreciate, though, that that is like a finite experience. Like I go in, I play it, I'm done. <laughs> and then you're done. Yeah. And I can be done and I don't need to go back and get all the Easter eggs. Like that's for somebody else. I can just play it and be done. I don't have to be like, there's a bazillion open world quest. This game is going to take you 500 hours. Good luck. Yeah, like Baldur's um, Gate. Yeah. <clears throat> exactly that one. And for our last, in case you missed it, Russell Quest has been delayed. Mega Aww. Cat Studios Russell Quest turned heads thanks to his gorgeous pixel art. And our friends at Kind of Funny are in the game. That's mm -hmm. kind of fun. Little Joey Noel, a little I Pixel Glory. I just called him Grave. Wow, Greg gets smacked upside the head with a guitar. <laughs> oh, yeah. 
That was fun. Uh, you know, he's committed to the bit. Hopefully he's <laughs> he's doing he's doing okay. Uh, so originally the game was supposed to come out on August 8th, which was, you know, a couple days ago now. And instead it's coming out on August 22nd on all platforms. So I think it's fine. It's just a couple, yeah. just a couple weeks, you know, just fixing a few bugs, sounds yeah. like. And um, I love that they admitted, like, what's going on. I mean, they, they said in their statement on Twitter that they discovered it's possible for players to lose their game save it, saves while switching platforms. And they're like, so we're going to go fix it. Like, thank you. Like, yeah, I appreciate that. That's I'd a bad thing that. to discover post-launch. That's bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's fix it before yeah. we launch. <laughs> no one wants to lose their save. <laughs> That's a review bomb worthy. Oh yeah, breaking bug. <laughs> I lose my progress. No, thank you. Please. No, thank you. Cheers. We'll wait. Exactly. All right, everybody. That is going to do it for our news. When we come back after the break, we're going to talk about some video games we've been playing, including a preview of Lords of the Fallen, the new Walking Dead betrayal game, and y'all know Brett has more to say about Baldur's Gate. We'll be right back. This week's episode of What's Good Games is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Going online without ExpressVPN is like using your expensive smartphone without a protective case. Now, maybe you think you'll take extra special care of it this time, but all it takes is one accidental drop to make you wish you had just gotten that darn case and protected yourself in the first place. Losing your personal data, I give you, is a lot more serious than losing a cracked phone screen. And since being online is pretty much our default state of living these days, it's important to be aware that you're constantly being watched. And any hacker on that same network, as you can gain access and steal your passwords, financial information, and more. It's so easy to hack someone these days that even a smart 12-year-old could do it. And then little Timmy can take your info and sell it on the dark web and then buy all the Fortnite bucks of his dreams. Don't get suckered by little Timmy, everybody. Get ExpressVPN. It creates an encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet so your sensitive data stays yours. The the best part is it's super easy to use. Just fire up the app on any of your devices, your phone, your laptop, tablets, and more, and just click one button to get protected. I was just at a rental house over the weekend celebrating my birthday out in the desert. And of course, you know, the house had free Wi-Fi, but y'all know I opened my ExpressVPN on my phone and got connected ASAP because I didn't want anything that I was doing tracked by the rental's IT admin. Spoilers, everybody. I was just looking up antique stores. Very exciting stuff, I know. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash what's good games. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash what's good games. And you can get an extra three months free expressvpn.com slash what's good games welcome back everybody it is the second segment of the what's good games podcast where we talk about what we've been playing and any preview events we have been to and guess what everybody we've been to two very exciting isn't it it so is i'm really excited i'm glad Brittany, that you are excited to hear it's about we're just stepping we all over each I mean, other. I like it when you step on me. I like it. It feels good. <laughs> Lords of the Fallen is one of my most anticipated games. That's what I'm trying to fucking say. And I got it out. Okay, Brittany, I'm very curious about your interest in Lords of the Fallen. So this is okay. a game that we got some really cool cinematic trailers for when they announced it. And I am going to admit that I did not realize that it is like a very hardcore Soulsborne game. Same. And once I discovered that by going to the preview event, I was oh. like, maybe 
Maybe Andrew oh, no. Renee is not going to be good at this game. <laughs> oh, no. I didn't know you didn't know. Yeah, I no, I'm know. excited for it because I obviously I had a really great experience with Elden Ring playing co-op with Jason in their roundabout co-op way. And I know this game is being developed with co-op in mind as well in the sense that it's, I, from what I hear, it's not going to be as punishing the co-op experience. You know, you don't have to summon someone in a random ass circle and then when they die, they disappear. I think they can remain in your game. And it just looks like a, a more, an easier way to play an Elden Ring type game with someone in co-op. So that's why I've had my eye on it for some time and I like the setting of it I like I saw some of the mage abilities I don't know what they're actually the class is actually called but it just looks really good and it looks really pretty and so I was very jealous when I saw that y'all were getting to play it well Brittany I am hoping that this isn't going to burst your excitement bubble oh, but girl. this game is far more intense than Elden Ring <laughs> oh, okay. um, from our gameplay experiences. So Rihanna also got to play the game. We had about two to three hours of hands-on time with the game and we got to play through some of the first section of the game. So for people who are like, what the heck is Lords of the Fallen? What's going on with this game? So Lords of the Fallen is actually, I don't want to use the word reboot because that feels not quite authentic to what they're doing, but it's like a continuation of the Lords of the Fallen game that was already released. So they're calling it an all new epic RPG adventure in a vast interconnected world, five times larger than the original game to kind of give people who played the original, which came out in 2014, by the way, kind of some, a touch point for how much more game this is. So it's being developed by Deck 13 and CI Games, and it's going to be coming out October 13th, 2023. And it looks beautiful. It's a dark fantasy world. So the original game focused a lot more on medieval fantasy. And they said that that was a big shift between the 2014 game and this game is that it's more dark fantasy. So definitely feels a lot more Demon Souls, Dark Souls, Bloodborne vibes, like really kind of grotesque, very scary monsters, very creepy worlds. Mm. Whereas I feel like even Elden Ring didn't feel super dark fantasy. It felt high fantasy in Ugh. some regards, but obviously there was some really like fucked up shit in that game. Um, <laughs> but this game, it's like, it just, it it almost it feels like it's like super gory from the jump. Mm. I'm not sure, Rihanna, how how it ranked on your kind of, ooh, it's making me squeamy kind of gauge. It, it didn't give me any like tummy rumbles, but it's definitely dark and, and grotesque. Those are really good words for, especially when you cross over from the lighter world, the, the world that looks more like something we would recognize, which is called Axiom. And you cross over using your lantern into the umbral, which is this dark blue, much more gory, much more, you know, dark fantasy themed world. So Crossing over between the two with your lantern, and the reason that I played this game is because you had a cool blue lantern, <laughs> it is more than just a, a gimmick or, or something that happens occasionally in the game. It is part of the way that you traverse this world, part of the way that you find different paths through the world. Um, different enemies will change depending on if you're in the Axiom world versus the Umbral world. You'll have different capabilities in the two worlds. So it is inherently part of the gameplay mechanics and you have the ability to switch between the two at will through at any point in your playthrough. So it does become almost a, a, a muscle to switch between worlds, which is very interesting mechanic. 
what I found really difficult is how many different controls there were right off the bat. And it could be that we were playing in, you know, a demo environment and it had to get us caught up really quickly so we could see everything. But uh, for me, I started playing as a mage type class. I went with Radiance, which is a type a subclass of magic that's focused on healing. But what I did not realize when I was building out my characters, that meant I didn't have any ranged combat because all I could do was heal at distance, which would be great if I had a co-op partner. We didn't have the opportunity to play co-op. So I was literally in like sort of a a dead build. And I found it very difficult. And to be fair, this is not my type of game. This is not my bread and butter. I'm not good at these games. So definitely do not take my opinion as authority if this is something you're usually interested in. But I found it very interesting. I I thought there were a lot of really original ideas and lots of cool ways to implement this, you know, traversing two different worlds at will. And the enemies were varied. We saw a few bosses, one of which I did beat. The other one I needed some help with, and (laughs) it's okay. Mm -hmm. The boss encounters are really fun. Uh, I thought it was cool. The the way that you can summon uh, an assistant, even if you don't have co-op one, was really useful. (laughs) If you remember that that first main boss in, in Elden Ring, it's very similar to that. You know, I I thought the the art style and the combat was all very intriguing. It it was just trying to orchestrate all of it together. I I didn't have a really solid way to to like make that sing and make that come alive. And it could be something that comes with more time. We did have a good amount of time in this demo, as as you said, two to three hours. But it, it is a lot to manage at once. And I have trouble with that type of gameplay style, especially in combat. So there are things that I liked about it, things that I didn't like about it. But the the goriness of it never really took me out of it. It felt, you know, like a dark fantasy game. And I was prepared for that part, at least. Yeah, so the game is really cool on a number of levels. Let me talk about some of the notes that I have here. So Rihanna mentioned the Axiom and the Umbral, and I think that is like a huge crux of the gameplay experience for Lords of the Fallen. The idea that you can swap between the the worlds. The way that the kind of Soulsborne element works in this game is that you have two lives, and you have a potion, like a... that. No, there isn't like a healing potion, is there? If you have a Radiance... A mechanic. It's there's like a way to heal yourself, and there's healing items in the oh, game. Oh yes, yes, yes. So I but was playing as a black them. feather ranger, which is like one of the more accessible classes. There were nine. I counted nine different classes that were available in the build that we played. I don't know if that's the final amount or if there's going to be more. Hallowed Knight, uh, Warwolf, Partisan, Mornstead Infantry, Exiled Stalker, Blackfeather Ranger, Orion Preacher, Pyrrhic Cultist, and Condemned. All like having very different stat ranges from Strength, Agility, Endurance, Vitality, Radiance, and Inferno, right? So you'll just have to kind of tool around and see what character build is going to look for you. They had a decent amount of options for customization for your character, which was mm-hmm. nice. And I'm sure that's something that they're going to add more of as the game goes on. But the gameplay between these two places, so you have these two lives. You have the ability, like Rihanna said, to hot swap between the worlds, but it's very like risk reward, meaning you essentially consume one of your lives to hot swap into the umbral. Now, there will be specific points in levels where you go between them, but when you die in Axiom, in like the light world, you automatically respawn in the umbral. I call it like Lords of the Fallen's version of the Upside Down, if you watch Mm -hmm. Stranger Things. So essentially, Mm -hmm. it's like the same 
general design of the level, but there will be different gates, different caves, different things that are open in one world versus the other. And then the enemies are substantially more difficult to fight. And there's this crazy eyeball timer that starts to count down for how long you're in the umbral and the longer you remain in like the the upside down, <laughs> the more enemies will start to converge on your location, making whatever task you're trying to accomplish there or any enemies that you're already fighting a more difficult battle because there's just going to be more people to fight. And it's stressful, okay? Mm. Let me just say, <laughs> you're already there because you probably died. And so you're like frustrated because you were doing something in Axiom and you died and now you're in the underworld. And then if you can't find your way out quick enough, then enemies just keep coming at you and keep spawning and keep trying to kill you. And so it's, um, it's definitely stressful, but it has... Uh, like a campfire type mechanic where you can get these seedlings and then you can plant them in the ground and then they act as save points. And then at the save points, you can rest, you can upgrade your character. I didn't feel like the checkpointing felt super egregious. I mean, part of the challenge of these games, of course, is the idea that you need to be mindful of where you're at in the level and what enemies you're engaging and what your strategy is going to be versus, you know, just kind of running in guns blazing, which is kind of how I play these games. Which <laughs> yes. Is, which is obviously so, not a very useful way to play these games. Um, excuse me? I mean, it can be useful if you're leveled up enough and if you're the right class ability. Or if you have, you know, a co-op partner who's there to, you know, kind of help. Take some of that damage for you. Yes, Mm -hmm. exactly. Teacher, I have a question. So you collect, is it called vigor in this game? Is that what you use to upgrade your your shit? Or is it like their souls? Like what's what's the currency that you collect to like upgrade yourself? Um, Let me check my nudes. I thought it was vigor, but maybe I'm wrong. Anywho, so I heard when you Vigor is one one of the currencies. Okay. But no, no, vigor is like the, vigor is like your stamina. Oh, okay. Well, then I totally fucked that up. Anyway, so when you die in Axiom, you don't lose all of your whatever the fucks they're called in until you die in the underworld. Yes. Is that how it works? Correct. Right. So if you die in... So once you've fully died, like in Umbral, that's when you lose all of your currency and you have to go back and find the enemy who killed you and then kill them and you can get it back. So that works very much like the Souls games in that regard. That like, if you're holding like a big bag and you get taken mm-hmm. out, you got to go try to find it and get it back before you lose it, right? Got and, it. And then once you're in Umbral, can you come back to Axiom? Yes. So you there's just have to find specific points. Yeah. Oh. So that's the key. So your lamp has the ability to take you into the Umbral anywhere from Axiom. So you can essentially consume one of your lives and then enter umbral at any time but you can't do that in reverse you have to find like a portal points and so you have to run around and try to find the portal to wherever you are but there's a big puzzle and traversal element in regarding going back and forth between axiom and umbral which i think is going to be a really cool thing that players are going to really dig about this game like learning the exploration and learning like so in the b-roll that we're watching here from this gameplay presentation that they put out like a couple weeks ago the character held up the lamp and it revealed you know part of the world in umbral that you can see only in axiom by holding your lamp up and kind of like shining this underworld light on like the hidden areas so there's like so many 
really cool things like that that they've built into the game that I think people are really going to love. Do you have a question? So when I think about Bloober's The Medium game where they kind of dealt with that dual world thing as well, when you're playing this, did you ever feel worried that you were missing cool stuff because you were playing an Axiom and you weren't going to the Emerald world? Or, 100%. Okay, no. Oh, you did? I did. I, I did yeah, not. Okay. okay. I constantly hold up my light just to make sure I'm not missing anything like over and over ah, again. Interesting. <laughs> but that it is it is easy to miss things if you're not paranoid like I am. And the like Rihanna said, the entire game every inch has all of Axiom and all of Umbral, meaning you can traverse every part of the the game in both worlds. Interesting, because I remember that was an issue I had with the mediums. I was always felt like I have to like see what was on the other side. And I'm worried that this might compel me to also be so focused on that that I might just not enjoy the moment. But well, what I have noticed from the early portions of the game, and obviously I can't speak to the larger story and world building that they do much later on, is that I didn't feel like I was missing like really key components that weren't easy to find. Because I mean, there's a huge mm. Metroidvania element to this game where you're going to have to do a lot of backtracking. There will be sections that you can't get to or there'll be bosses that you don't, you're not high powered enough to take out. I mean, and you're going to have to like backtrack and, you know, figure out traversal puzzles as well. Like for example, so your lamp also has a bunch of gameplay components. So Rihanna mentioned this when she was talking and that was what was so difficult about this press preview was that they kind of threw us in and we had to learn all of these mechanics in a really short amount of time to try to see the game as as much as we could. And so we did go through like a tutorial section of the game, which is helpful. But so when you're in combat, there's also lamp specific moves. And one of them is called a soul flay. So you have to hold up your lamp while you're fighting somebody and then essentially like flay their soul out of their body. And then you can attack their soul and it creates like a really huge deficit and damage point on them. And then there's also something called a soul siphon that you are going to need a siphon charge for. And then there's certain places in the world where you can get the siphon charges and the certain enemies you can get the siphon charges off of. But knowing which enemies to use them on and how you can use them and when to use them is something that's just going to take time mm -hmm. for you to learn as a player. But also like in tandem with the class that you pick and the combat style that you're going with and the weapons that you choose... I mean, there's just a lot of gameplay mechanics at work here, which I think, you know, hardcore Soulsborne fans are really going to sink their teeth into and I think are going to be really cool. I don't know yet in high level combat how all of those things are going to work together. I really hope they're going to sing, but there's no way to tell yet because we only got to see, you know, kind of low level gameplay, even though they did show us a couple bosses. I, <laughs> I'm just going to go ahead and admit I had to have one of the devs like God mode me straight to the boss because I just kept dying <laughs> in the main world over and over again. And I was like, listen, I'm running out of time. Can you just <laughs> teleport me to the boss so I can see it? <laughs> and then yeah, I, I had a similar issue because, again, I, I had no ranged combat, so I couldn't progress. Like, I can heal you to death. but <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and let me tell you, like, some of the, the basic enemies are really intense. I mean, like, you know, you experienced, you mentioned Elden Ring, Brittany, like, you know, the, some of those opening NPCs, like they get you. They get you good until you kind of learn. And that's like their big thing. I'm very much like from software's design philosophy 
you know, the team at CI Games, you know, talked about this idea of risk reward, of learning patterns, of kind of slowing down gameplay. But they also mentioned that in addition to doing that, one of the big things that they really focused on in improving in this game versus the original Lords of the Fallen was that they thought the gameplay was a little bit too slow, particularly combat. So they've sped it up a bit. So if you played the original game and you were like, yo, I didn't really care for that, I would say hold opinions until you get to either play it for yourself or watch some extensive like Twitch streams or YouTube Let's Plays after the game comes out. And then you can really kind of see how much they've sped combat up. Even in some of the B-roll that we've been showing in the video here, like some combat, depending on which class you pick, could actually be really, really kind of fun and fluid. And I really enjoyed that because that was the thing I struggled with the most in the the Souls games was that I am usually a rogue class player and I just want to like stab, 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 and just dodge roll, dodge roll, dodge roll. And like, that's not the kind of game this is, right? You have to be a lot more methodical and watch the patterns and really be more <laughs> considerate of, you know, your vigor bar and all that. But I mean, the game looked really great. And I think that people who love this genre are going to really have a great time playing it. I'm very excited. You, you all have sold me. I mean, I was, I was already excited. This is the sort of game I really wouldn't want to play like by myself, but mm -hmm. the co-op aspect is what's got me really excited about it. Yeah, I would have loved to have tried co-op at this event. I was like pretty bummed that yeah. it wasn't available as an option in the build that they brought with for the press preview. But if it works, it could be really dope. Let's just hope it works. <laughs> yeah, right? We're close to launch. So yeah, just a couple really? months away now. So it's, I mean, we're in the end game now, <laughs> as they like to say. But Re, do yeah. you uh, have any other thoughts about Lords of the Fallen other than maybe it's not your jam? <laughs> I would be willing to revisit it if there was co-op. And, and you know, eventually when we have that opportunity, I'm going to give it one more chance because the lantern shit is so cool. Like it really is. And it, it gave me something to be good at <laughs> when I wasn't good at a lot of the other parts of this game. So I'm into it. And the gore wasn't too much for me. So I'm in. One thing that I hope is addressed that I did not enjoy in particular is the, the automatic snapping the enemies when I'm actually just trying to look around. That oh, was really yes. frustrating and it so, got me killed a lot. And I'm glad I, that you brought that up. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I don't know what this fix is or if it's something that they can solve, but I know it's something that made it really hard, you know, as you're, you know, running around, there's 10 different enemies on the screen. You're trying to target one, but then you're trying to look behind them and then the target switches and oh, this one in front of you just killed you. It's mm. not fun. So no, the camera but, lock is broken in yeah. that build. And I talked to one of the developers about it. And had said, so So let me explain a little bit about what this feature is. So much like any game that has an auto lock on, you like push in the stick and then it locks onto a character, but your default in auto target, meaning whenever you move the stick, it then locks on to the enemy next to that enemy. And if you get a group of enemies, which spoilers, there will be many groups of enemies, it jumps frenetically between the enemies as you're trying to swing the camera around for combat, because this is a 3D game, and it becomes almost infuriating trying to manage who the lock-on target is. And some of the spells you have to have lock-on, and then using your lantern abilities, you have to use lock-on as well. And so it was really frustrating trying to use auto lock on. So I just turned it off mm -hmm. in the build, oh. meaning I would have to manually lock onto characters, which is what the way most 
players in these kind of games want to play anyway. But I talked to the devs about it. I was like, hey, like it just felt really like unbalanced. And they're like, we're aware that there's a camera problem and we're working on it. And I was okay. like, that's great news. <laughs> so hopefully it's, you know, it's part of the the final build that that gets a little bit toned down. Like how jumpy the auto lock was because that that absolutely is in my notes. That says mm-hmm. <laughs> camera lock with the auto target is not fun. <laughs> That's what I wrote down in my notes. <laughs> it's funny. And, and it's a co- of course something that they will address hopefully successfully, but it's enough that it made me not want to try it again. So that is the other thing that I need. I, I want to know, I want to go in with a friend and I want that camera to be fixed and then I'm down. Yeah. Cause the other lantern. That, did you have any other technical issues that you came across or does it feel pretty much ready? It, it, this, the switch between the two worlds was seamless for me. There were a couple of loops I got stuck in, which I think is just, you know, like they just need to fix a couple save points here and there where like I would like fall off of a cliff by the, by accident, by putting my lamp down. Cause I was trying to switch something. And then like, I have to start the whole level again. That's not fun. <laughs> so things like that, but nothing inherently broken in the, build that I I played except for the fact that fucked myself into not having any distance any range combat you're gonna be a really good healer I could heal everything (laughs) except (laughs) me (laughs) feels like maybe that should that should not be a thing yeah the build that I was playing you know also didn't feel broken there I wrote down (laughs) enemies approaching from behind question mark because there's no indicator the enemies approach you from behind. They will jump out from things and just like there's no indicator that they're literally stabbing you in the back until you start to lose your health. And I asked someone else at the event, Alessandro Falari. He's such a wonderful ah. person. I was like, yep. Alessandro, am I just not understanding? And he's like, yeah, Andrea, like that's pretty that's pretty standard for these games. And I was like, damn it. Yeah. Audio, audio people cues like, great. People like that? And he's like, yeah, people love that. And I was like, okay, fine. It's people just, love that. It's just me then. Okay. People love getting jumped in the dark. Yep. <laughs> well, for me, it wasn't even the jump scares. It was the idea that I could be targeted on an enemy in front of me and there could be enemies approaching from behind me and then attacking me and I won't know they're there. Like there's no indicator on screen at all that there are enemies coming and you have to be, you have to either have really good headphones and be listening. But even then, like I said, sometimes they just like, surprise, step, step, step. <laughs> so it's mm-hmm. just like, I was like, <laughs> leave me alone. I'm just trying to explore. <laughs> Are there different difficulty options? Did they talk about that? Uh, not that I saw. I didn't hear any. Okay. So it's a one. One one size fits all. You get two lives. That's the, the difficulty Two lives. Option. Two. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> so uh, plan accordingly <laughs> is, is what I'll say. All right. That is it for Lords of the Fallen. And hopefully if you guys are interested, you can go check it out now. Brittany, you have ah. uh, any any extra tidbits about your time in the most popular game on Steam? Yeah, so it's an unfortunate slash fortunate time to have COVID because that means I've been upstairs in my Cove cave putting probably like 40 to 50 hours of Baldur's Gate in this week and it's only Wednesday. So that's been kind of fun. Yeah, I mean, like I'm, I'm still in Act 1 right now because I'm trying to do absolutely everything I can in Act 1 because before I move on to Act 2 because the game kindly tells you like, yo, you can continue, but you're, what did they say, like, 
painfully underleveled. There's another disasterly underleveled. They use a funny word in there. Um, so I'm not proceeding. I'm just staying in the same areas, leveling up and doing the side stuff. Because unfortunately, I have a really annoying bug right now where I can't recruit the bear that got fucked in the um, the preview footage. Yeah, his name's Halson. And a lot of people are having the same issue. So Larian's aware of it, I'm sure. And I've, I've reported my bug. And so hopefully that gets fixed. But in the meantime, I'm just doing everything I can in Act 1. And even 40 to 50 hours into this first act, I'm still finding brand new locations, dungeons, secret side stuff that I never had any idea would have existed had I not succeeded a persuasion check or an insight check or perception or nature. It's just like you're you're finding all of, all I know is I'm going to be so good at the next D&D session we have. Yeah, I, am I love basically, it. I'm basically a professional now. Um, but no, like honestly, the last time I felt this giddy and this excited and this entranced by a game was probably Dragon Age Origins that feeling of these characters are real and they're alive and everything reacts to your to your actions and everything has opinions and the world you're in you just never know what you're going to find but now we have you know the blessing of amazing technology where I feel like you can literally do anything you want in this game. And I think that's where a lot of this magic comes from is again, like six years of development. You have over 450 members, uh, development team members who are, you know, cream of the crop and everything you do feels like it has been touched by human hands again and again and again. It's just, I could have a mission of going from point A to point B, but I'm going to find interesting characters, secrets, maybe a dungeon, a books to read, like people to rescue, dead people to talk to animals to talk to like you're just gonna find so much stuff and it's just this incredible feat of just giving players just agency and player freedom and it's just I cannot I it would be an understatement to say how remarkable it is what they've pulled off and I'm just so thrilled so far with act one granted I still have two more acts to go and probably another 100 hours to play of this game but yeah I mean like listen like I've talked about this game many many times I'll talk about some of the fun stuff that I've seen people do so far, I dual-wielded salami, and that was really fun. <laughs> I'm I sorry, believe. what? You dual-wielded salami? Yes. And each salami, I believe, was a 1d4 bludgeon damage, and that sure, was pretty why not? cool. <laughs> why not? But I dual-wielded salami, and it was fucking awesome. And I was like, I love this game so much. I saw someone on Twitter use their bard to distract a group of people, and then while they were singing to that group of people and getting paid for it, their thief in the group went and pickpocketed everybody dry. I was like, that's fucking brilliant. I'm absolutely going to do that. Um, Matt Mercer, who is the voice of Ganondorf in Tears of the Kingdom, collected over 40 crates and stacked them on top of each other and scaled his tower of crates and jumped on top of a building inside the city of Baldur's Gate. Which I'm like, that's fucking awesome that you can do that. Um, I came across a poisonous vent that was emitting gaseous, noxious fumes. And I'm like, that sucks. So I was looking through my inventory for something to cover the vent with. I found a goblin corpse that I had been apparently carrying around for probably 10 hours at that point. Amazing. So I whipped I whipped out that corpse and I threw it on the vent and I solved my problem. You know, it's just this amazing, all this cool stuff you can do. All of these battles, there's so many different ways to do it. I was having a really hard time with this battle because it was like 10 on four. And I dis I discovered, I looked up at the ceiling, there was a suspended plate of hot coals. And I'm like, I know what to do with that. So I cast an illusion with my mage. Wait, 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 underneath. wait, wait. Before you say what you did, how did you know what to do? What do you, how did I know? With the thing of hot coals. This? You were like, I knew what to do with that. Oh, because oh, I've... 
this is something Larian has done in their games for a very long time. Okay. And so I'm used to the Larian way of things. Also, if you hover over an item with your cursor, like you can do full on isometric view or you can zoom into over the uh, shoulder. Obviously, when you're doing battle, you want to zoom out because you can see everything. Um, if you hover around and look, items that you can usually interact with will be highlighted. Okay. If you hover over it. So and then you can examine it. I saw it had like one HP, the little piece of wood that was like holding it from the ceiling. And I'm like, aha. So what I did with my wizard is I... I cast an illusion underneath the hot plate of coals that was suspended from the ceiling. And then about five or six of the enemies gathered around because they were inspecting it. And then at that point, I used my rogue to fire, fire an arrow and shoot the plate down. And then I instant killed everybody. Nice. And I was like, ha. Hell yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So it's just, that's what's so cool about it. And that's why I think this game is going to have legs forever. It's like, you're going to hear those stories from people. And everyone's like, oh, you no one knew that you could throw something on the vents, right? When I tweeted about that, people were like, oh, you could do that. And it's like, yes, you're probably overthinking a lot of these solutions, but you can if you want to. And that's what makes it really fun. It's just an incredible game. And I'll be talking about it probably for the rest of the year. And just a reminder, if you don't know, friends, it has full controller support. I'm using a PS5 controller, and it's amazing. And there is cross-progression. Obviously, you'll have to buy two copies of the game if you want to play it on console later. But that's my plan. I'm playing this right now on PC. And then once the PS5 version comes out, I'll finally put my PC back in my office and I'll have my normal backdrop. You can save scum. So I'm an up I love save scum. Oh, yeah. I'm not against love it. Love good save Hell scum. Yeah. Yep, I have a save scum file, and then I have my file with Jason where he's just chaos and wants to, like, murder and kill everything that breathes. And so I'm like, okay, well, I'm not going to let you do that on my playthrough, so we have a separate campaign. Uh, but, yeah, you can save scum before every dice roll, every dialogue option. I think right now I have it set so I can have 25 save files at a time. So, you know, you can continually save, and you don't have to worry about overwriting your save if you don't want to. It's so much fun. It's so incredible. I don't see how this is not going to be my game of the year by the time 2023 is over. But... We'll see. But yeah, it's just everything I want it to be. And I'm just really, really happy that everyone's experiencing the magic that is Larian Studios. I know millions of people have before, but I've just been preaching for so long that they're such an incredible studio, so much heart and passion and talent. And it's just lovely to see them kicking ass. And it makes me so happy. That's Yay. awesome. And I did want to mention, since we didn't mention it earlier in the news, it's currently a 97 on Metacritic, which is right impressive. There's not a ton of Hell critical yeah. reviews yet, but there's over 2,500 user reviews, and it's sitting at a 9.3, which is Ooh, for, for user reviews, yeah. that's really good. Yes. <laughs> people really are people good. are stupid with their reviews on yeah. Metacritic, so that's pretty impressive. And I'm interested to see you know more of the critical reviews as they come in, but I imagine they'll be pretty good. Let's just hope... It plays real nice on PlayStation 5. <laughs> yeah. Well, awesome. I'm glad that you're having a fantastic time with this. Rhea, I know you have limited time left before yes. you have no time left. Is this on your list of stuff to play? Or are you like, I got too much else going on? It's it's on the rainy day list for me. I think it's one of those games where once I start it, I'm going to get sucked in. And so I'm just strategically choosing when to lose myself to it. Yeah. Um, because I, I can see that it's a game that would probably, you know, be up my alley, especially as something that, you know, I could play a single player. And if it's something that is good on Steam Deck, it might make it like bump it up in the schedule because it's a lot easier for me to do than, you know, sitting here in my PC setup or even, you know, just in the living room. Like if I can play it like a couple hours before I go to sleep, that's a little bit easier to do with a Steam Deck. But yeah, I it's on the list. I'm, I'm thinking maybe 2023, but who knows? Because come November, all bets are off. So oh yeah, yeah we'll see. 
it is Steam Deck verified, and there mm-hmm. are a lot of threads out there that have um, optimal settings for Steam Deck. I got a Steam Deck. I haven't Yay! done all the thing with it. I'm very excited, but I can't pull myself away from my fancy PC just yet. But yeah, I know there's lots of threads out there with optimal settings. Okay, so. cool. It's a thing. Yeah. yeah. And the controller UI is phenomenal. It's a completely different UI than it is for PC. So it, it works really well. So. That is good to hear. Yeah. 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 It's on the list. We'll see. All right, so the last game I want to talk about this week is The Walking Dead Betrayal. So this is another preview event. So this game is being developed by Skybound Games, and it's being, well, I shouldn't say it's being developed. It's being published by Skybound, uh, and it's being developed by Other Ocean, who worked on a game called Project Winter, which people may or may not have played. So when they first announced this game, and they said it was a social deception game, I was like, hmm... This feels like like a very fun property to do a social deception game with. So social deception games have become super popular in the last couple of years, thanks in most part to Among Us just taking off during the pandemic. And we've seen a couple of different takes on it. And knowing what happens in the Walking Dead universe and, you know, survivors all vying for resources, trying to outwit the zombies and the walkers and not die. It felt like it was ripe for that. And boy, oh boy, was my gameplay session filled with some cutthroat, nasty bitches. All right. Because I say that because people were, I mean, there's so much opportunity to just completely screw over everybody else that you're playing with. There, it is somebody's role to be the traitor, but it's not everybody's role to be the traitor. Um, so it's yeah, a five to eight. Yeah, right. Everybody was volunteering to be the traitor in, in, in my in mine. I got poisoned. I got stabbed in the back. I got exploded. I mean, holy shit! So many things happen. So it's five to eight people that can play, and there's a variety of different roles that you get assigned when you load into the game. So the roles that I wrote down that I saw were scavenger, trader, bodyguard, tailor, which the tailor, by the way, sews skin suits from walkers, meaning you can disguise yourself as a walker in the world. Uh, oh, neg- negotiator, turncoat, confident, daredevil, and bereaved. This was, this was fun. The bereaved is where you've lost a loved one to a walker and you want revenge and your goal is to poison all the other players. Like that's your... Normally, your goal is to build this like wagon to help you escape and you have to collectively get out there all the parts and build it. But sometimes your role is just to literally kill everybody else. So that's not the traitor. That's like a, another another traitor air quotes. Yes. Yes. Oh, my God. Well, ruthless. I mean, because your goal is, is to escape because you have 30 minutes on the map before this like giant horde of walkers comes and then you essentially like die. Um, so I kind of liken some of the gameplay elements to Friday the 13th. If people played that game, it also has that kind of asymmetrical co-op feel, meaning you're working mostly with other people, but you could absolutely lone wolf it. If you tried, though, it's going to be much more difficult for you if you're lone wolfing it. And it's kind of like a timed thing, meaning you only have X amount of time to like escape the walkers. And after that, you're kind of like, you know, they're just going to eat your face. And so it's interesting because it very much feels like if you guys played Project Winter, this definitely feels like Project Winter, but just with like a Walking Dead skin or Walking Dead theme as it were. And so if you guys played Project Winter, that you'll feel right at home here. So the art style, I was hoping a little bit more for more of a Walking Dead art style than a Project Winter art style. Like I would have loved to see this be a little bit more 
comic book or cell shaded looking, knowing that you know The Walking mm. Dead is this expansive comic series. But I understand that from a developer standpoint, they were like, "Hey, we already know how to do this art style, so let's not you know make it that much harder for us." And maybe if this game goes well, that could be something different that they do. But so it's isometric, um, and they do have controller support, and we played on PC. And there is proximity chat, so you can talk with all of your, you know, I would say your your partners, but who knows? <laughs> I, I certainly didn't have that many partners. They were just, I just kept getting killed, okay? Um, oh, but I did get the negotiator as one of the roles that I had, which m- means that I, whenever we were voting for something, my votes counted for double, I believe, hmm. um, because there's these mailboxes all over where you can essentially like exile or vote people out, very similar to, you know, a lot of other social deception games. And then there's also these dead drops where you can drop different items that you need to either rebuild or if you find like a weapon for somebody, you can drop them and then you can essentially pick them up at any point on the map. But your teammates can also sabotage and booby trap those. So if you go to a (laughs) go to a dead drop to be like, oh, I put some like wooden spikes in the dead drop so that you can build like a trap or whatever to because there's a big horde coming. I could go there and get poisoned by opening the dead drop. I got exploded one time by opening the dead drop because somebody like rigged it with a bomb. And I was just like, so question, yes. what's the incentive for your so-called teammates to kill you? Honestly, unless it's your role to kill other people, it would just be to incite in, you know, like sabotage. Essentially like the idea like in, for example, in like Among Us, if you played that, you could kill, you could pretty much kill anybody even if you weren't the one who was supposed to be killing people. Right. Because then you could be like, oh, this person killed them. It was, they're the, they're the one, they're the murderer or whatever. Uh, So you can do that to like throw people off your scent. So if there's like, I I was in a group of like three or four people, we were all working together to try to get some materials. And so now it's like, you don't know who did it. Right. Because somebody Mm, would just shell out, I got poisoned. And then there'd be like four or five of us all in a cluster and be like, who did, who, who did it? Don't know. So, I mean, I honestly don't think it's benefits you to kill too many people because the more people you have working towards the goal, the faster you get out. And the longer you stay in the map, the more the walkers converge on your location because anything you do makes noise. And then there is combat. So you can pick up sticks, you can craft weapons, you can find guns in the world. But let me tell you, it's not like fast and fluid combat. Like those walkers sometimes move slow. But I mean, this is not like a combat heavy game, right? Like You can't fight your way mm-hmm. out of this map. You have to build this wagon and then you have to escape on it. You can't like sneak your way out. You have to like do the objective to survive and to win. So it's, um, it was intense. winning playthroughs? No, I did not. (laughs) Every time we lost. I mean, we didn't get, I I definitely needed more time with the game. The preview session was relatively short and I had to, uh, well, actually, no, I stayed for all of the gameplay. I just missed the the Q&A at the end. But there's definitely a lot of really cool opportunities to have some really interesting different play sessions because, I mean, it's got the whole betrayal and deception element. It's got these like hidden role abilities so, for example, like the confidant is that after five minutes of gameplay, you're shown two names, one of which is the traitor, 
but you don't know, but it doesn't say which one's the traitor. It just is like shows oh. you two names of players and all you know is that one of those two people is the traitor. And so it's like, how do you use that to your advantage or do you even, do you try to like corner them into like outing themselves? And it's, huh. it's, it's interesting. I think that people are really going to like it. It definitely feels like it'll be a really fun stream game. And there's all kinds of cool character customizations. You get to like build your survivor and there's a lot of nods to characters from the comic books and like their outfits and things like that. I think that people are going to like it. There was definitely some some bugs when I was playing. I'm not going to pretend like there wasn't. But, you know, this was clearly a build that's not finished. And I, I did like that, you know, we got to play with one of the members of the team from um, Other Ocean, even though uh, she did admit to killing me. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh no, somebody stabbed me. And then she was and then what? Oh, by the way, I should mention, once you die, the game's not over for you. Um, you can keep playing. What you can do is you can essentially like zoom around the map and then you can go into the body of walkers and then you can control the walkers. So you could essentially oh, take out funny. revenge on the person that killed you and then you can like jump out of that walker and like zoom across the map to somebody else and jump into another walker and you can herd, you know, the the horde towards specific oh, players fun. and things like that. So you kind of have this ability to kind of keep playing even if you get poisoned or exploded <laughs> or eaten <laughs> like, by a walker. Man. Yeah, because you can get poisoned and then become a walker too or a bitten. Bless you for playing these sorts of games. They, they're too stressful for me. Mm. Way too stressful. So I'm, I'm glad you had a great time, but I will be staying for Well, it was tough because I knew some of the other press members that were in my demo, but it's hard when you play a social deception game with a bunch of strangers, with people who are not your friends or are people that you play online with all the time, like in your guild or clan or whatever, just kind of jumping into it. It's like, you're like, I don't know what kind of person you are in these games, like... <laughs> And it's not as fun to, you know, kind of see the player interaction with people that you're like, I don't know who you are. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. Sure. I, I never played a game of Among Us with like total randos. I never did that because I was like, I, this does not feel yeah. fun to me. Seems pointless. Yeah. So I think it was a, a little bit of an odd experience, but we did obviously get to see how the game works and how all the roles work. And I can imagine how fun it could be with, with a group of friends. So. As long oh. as a lot of Pierce isn't in the group, oh. I will never forget, never forget oh that faded game of Among Us. Oh <laughs> Turned everybody against me. That was so funny. It was so mad. I was like, wow, I, I, just, I was just took me by surprise. Like, I did not know, but now I know, Lana. Now I know. I forgot all about that. <laughs> um, anyway, so that's the game. I don't think it has a release date yet. I hmm. think it's just, oh. yeah, just later, later. in 2023. Um, there is a closed beta that's happening like right now, but it's only for a couple of days. And I imagine they will also be doing an open beta at some point ahead of launch. It just says sometime later this year. Keep an eye yeah. out for that if that's something that feels like a fun time for you. Well, really quick, yeah. shout out to a game that is out now on Steam, Super Space Club from oh, yes. a friend of the show, Grim of Legend. His game is out. It's lo-fi beats and chill vibes, like floating around in space and like actually very competent, like space shooter if you're trying to get high scores. So 
I played and previewed this game a while back here on the show and had a wonderful time with it. I could definitely see where the the skill ceiling is very high. However, my abilities were maybe not that high. So for, for me, it was more just like a palate cleanser. So like if you're getting overwhelmed with all these big, huge games and things that are coming out soon, like it's a nice little break and you can just listen to a few really good songs and vibe out. So that's out now on Steam and I think coming to Xbox and potentially PlayStation soon. But right now it's available Sweet. on that good old Steam. Great on Steam Deck too. Good old Steam. And I would play some of the amazing music, but yeah. um, you know, content ID, y'all. Content ID. Can't <laughs> have it. But that's going to do it for our hands-on session. We could probably keep talking about games, but y'all, we did a fantastic interview that Brittany and I are super excited to share with you. It's literally been months in the making, us trying to coordinate with this busy man's schedule, but we did finally get something in the calendar with Stanley Pierre-Louis, who is the president and CEO of the ESA, the Entertainment Software Association, most frequently known by people as the E3 folks. And we got to ask him a ton of questions, and some of them are about what who the ESA is, that essential facts report that they put out, the legal issues that the video games industry is facing and what the ESA is doing to help publishers kind of tackle some of those legal issues. And then, of course, y'all know we asked him about E3. So if you want to find out, I hope you guys stick around because the interview is fantastic. So without further ado, please welcome to the show Stan-Pierre-Louis, the president and CEO of the ESA, the Entertainment Software Association. Stan, it's so good to finally make this happen. No, I appreciate you guys making time for me. This is great. I've been a big fan. I love the interviews you guys do. I love what you do for games and the industry. So it's a treat to be here. What's it like having such a fancy name? I, I wish I could say I worked really hard on it, but it's just my. <laughs> it was just a handout. You just got it. <laughs> well, we're glad that we were able to make this happen. I know it's been a couple of months in the making. You obviously are an incredibly busy man, but we're glad that you are here. Before we kick things off, talking about like who the ESA is and what you guys are up to, I would love for all of our listeners and viewers to kind of hear about what is your role at the ESA and kind of how did you get involved in the ESA in the first place? First of all, let me just thank you guys, not only for having me, but for the work you do. Even the name of this show, What's Good Games, signals that there's a lot of good in games. And a lot of times we find that people don't think of the importance of advocating for games. You know, a lot of the other entertainment industries have a machine around them, whether it's the Oscars or a behind the scenes show or what have you, that keeps reinforcing the importance of that industry. And we as an industry need to keep doing that. And it's vehicles like this that I find really important for us to continue doing and to really showcase to the world because, you know, games are the dominant form of entertainment. Everybody loves games. Everybody plays games. Everyone feels good about games, and so we ought to be celebrating it. So that excites me about being here, but also about being in games. Our role at ESA is to serve as the voice and advocate for games. We started in 1994 following significant risks of regulation because several legislators in the federal level were concerned about where games were going. They had tried legislating out of existence film and television and music. Before that, believe it or not, pinball machines, because they thought kids hanging out in arcades were a problem. And then they came after games. And so we were really founded to show that we could self-regulate, but also that legislation wasn't necessary. And we've been advocating for games since then in a very powerful and successful way. 
Obviously, we're also known for other things, some of our research, E3, and then part of the organization also operates as ESRB, the Entertainment Software Rating Board. It's run separately and independently. It is a self-regulatory body for this industry. There's a great podcast that you guys did with Pat Vance, who runs ESRB, so I commend people to check that out. But the bottom line is we make sure that games get a great stage and platform at every level, whether it's political or with the communities or with the business community and in society generally. In layman's terms, I would just love to hear from you. What would happen if the ESA didn't exist? Well, a lot of people blame games for everything. And one of the things that, you know, you probably noticed over the years was video games getting blamed for real world violence or all kinds of issues that kids may be having. We've seen both through our advocacy and people getting better information is that we're actually blamed less. We've gone from pariahs to really Main Street. And here's an example of it. This year, sadly, there have been 180,000 mass shootings, meaning three or more people involved in some type of gun violence. We haven't gotten calls on those. In years past, we would probably be blamed for many of them. But one of the things we were able to highlight in addition to all the legal claims that we've been able to win is a very practical one, which is the same games sold in the United States are sold in every other country of the world. And we're the only ones with a gun violence. And so it can't be the games. That really seemed to resonate about three or four years ago with consumers, with legislators, with public policy advocates. And that really signaled a shift in how people view games. Now the question is, how can we elevate games to something that people point to as an answer so that when I pull out my Switch on the plane, as I did this past weekend, people look and go, how do I play one of those and where can I get one? As opposed to, hey, why isn't he reading a book, right? We've got to change how people view someone playing games on a plane. And then that's when we'll know that we've made that next turn. But so far, we as an industry, not just CSA, but we as an industry have advocated well for what games mean. And one of the reasons we release research for everyone isn't just for advocacy with public policy advocates. It's because we want anybody sitting in a PTA meeting who gets a weird question to say, actually, I have some facts about that. Let me correct you. Let me tell you why games are great. Data is always so powerful and conventional wisdom about who gamers are and what gaming culture is has been so stuck in a certain mindset for so long. It's so wonderful that it kind of feels like we're over the hump. And I think a lot of that has been like the digitization of, of play and how it's way more accessible now and more people than ever are gaming on their phones. Like a lot of these wonderful numbers from this fantastic mm -hmm. report that, yeah. you know, the team at the ESA has put together. We talked about it on What's Good, uh, you know, back in July when it came out, the Essential Facts document. And you guys have been doing this for quite some time. It feels like a massive undertaking to kind of do that report. What goes into making the Essential Facts? Well, every year for more than a decade now, we've undertaken to understand the demographics of who's playing and the attitudes and perceptions people have about games. And that's because we wanted to have a benchmark about where we are, but also to advocate in a way that reflects where everyone is. And what's really, really interesting about it is, you know, people who aren't in the gaming world tend to still be surprised at some of the outcomes, whereas people who are in the video game world are going, yep, there's just like a nod, like, yeah, we start, you know, revealing some of these facts. And it's like, yep, that's my life, or that's what I see every day. 
And so we know that we have to continue to do that until it becomes rote for people to understand where games are. You know, one of the big things that we saw this past year is how many more people play together. You were talking about how people build communities around games and how much, how many, how much people are playing together. This year, our research found that 80% of people play together with someone either in person or online. That's been a number that's been rising every single year. Right before the pandemic, that number was about 66%. And now we're kind of out of the, the core of the pandemic. And it shows that that number is still on the rise because games are growing because people can play together. It's a lot of fun to play, but it's even more fun to play with others. And sometimes that's family and friends, and sometimes it's people you've never met, but they're on the other side of the world, but they love the same game you do. I think that's really spurred the growth of games, but it's also been a reason why games have formed more communities. It's because that ability to play together. Has your data shown that since the pandemic, there has been an influx in new gamers who maybe tried it out because Among Us was the only way to hang out with their friends? There are new gamers, but they range in age, right? So it's not there are new gamers who are just growing up. It's seniors, right? Even the AARP, believe it or not, they conduct a study every two to three years on the 50 plus gamer. And they have found tremendous growth in the number and the engagement. And their most popular page on their website is their video game page on the AARP it's website. so amazing. I love that. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? I love <laughs> and that. So, and right now there are just as many people, perhaps even more, 45 and older playing than under 18. And that just shows the level of growth of the industry. And some of those are mobile players. They're, they're learning how to play for the first time on the device that they have because everyone has a mobile device and therefore you can play games on it. Some of it's people transitioning from board games to online games, right? And I mean, when I'm talking about the older set, you know, you couldn't get together with your friends for Bridge or for Scrabble, and all of a sudden you've figured out how to do it online, and now you're continuing to do it because you don't have to travel as much. And some of it's other kind of puzzle games in terms of that older set. I think every demographic has a game that drives the growth in that group. So for younger and middle-aged players, it might be more of the console games, might be fighting games, sports games, but you're seeing in every demographic a growth of the ability to play, and to play together. And then what I love is the intergenerational play. I get to see this with my son and his grandmother where, you know, he will challenge her to a game of Madden and then just crush her and feel <laughs> proud of it. I'm like, I mean, you do realize. You <laughs> do like realize. <laughs> Grandma's I probably not, you know, that. entering Madden tournaments on the weekends. Oh, no, but he, for him, the win's a win. It's the teenagers. It's, hey, if you step on the field, you got to come to play. I just got to take a second because my grandma plays video games and she's also in her 80s. And I don't think I've met anyone else who has like a relative who is in their 80s and still loves playing video games. So that just makes me happy to hear. But Madden, my grandma would never play Madden. She's stuck on her PlayStation 2. That's okay, though. <laughs> I had the amazing opportunity recently to join you at the United Nations during the Games for Change Festival, where you spoke and a, a bunch of other phenomenal people from different organizations were talking about the video games industry and what we are doing to try to make our mark on the world and how to educate people on the positive power of video games through a variety of different faucets as kind of highlighted by the sustainable development goals that the United Nations has. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting about that conversation was just how much the educational field and academics of video games has dramatically increased over the last like five to 10 years, most notably how games are used for education, particularly in children, and how there's 
programs now at almost every major university for video game development. Was that something when you began your work at the ESA that you saw coming or has this been kind of a surprise? You know, I think that one of the things that academics found challenging, particularly in the early 2000s, mid kind of 2010 to 12, they found it hard to get respectability for game development as a career option. And they found that university deans and professors weren't really giving games the respect they thought it deserved, particularly given the growth that we were all seeing in the game space, but that the general public wasn't aware of in a lot of ways because there was so much going on at the time. And over time, as games have become more popular, particularly esports, and seeing the engagement with youth in particular, a number of institutions, whether it's academic, now the UN and others, have started focusing on not just the power of games, but the power of the audience around games. If so many youth and people growing up are paying attention to games, it's an opportunity to educate. It's an opportunity to use that as a vehicle to reach out and to mobilize. And I think that's what you're seeing in a number of fields is that the video game community is not only really smart in STEM and in storytelling, but an active group, right? You can't get into a community without heavy opinions on things. And that's a very polite way of putting it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and what's funny is that there's an activism around it today, but even if you looked at it at the turn of the century, 99 going into 2000, 2001, what you saw was a heavy digital component of change. I mean, yes, we're software, but moving to online and moving to multiplayer, we're an industry that's had to change to keep up with the audience demands. And so a lot of video game companies will sacrifice short-term gain to meet a long-term objective. And so you're always seeing change in the industry because the audience was demanding better game quality, better resolution on the screen, faster controllers. I mentioned my son before when he's playing in his tournaments, it's got to be plugged in, no Bluetooth. No leg. You might lose a nanosecond. There's a demand on the technology as well as the storyline and the capabilities of the characters. And so we're an industry that's always progressing. And I think that's helped us tremendously throughout the existence of the industry. And I think a lot of institutions want to capture that, whether it's education, social justice, or world health. Mm, and on that note, if you could look into your crystal ball, because I feel like we as gamers are sadly getting older, and we're going to start filling in those roles as we grow and progress throughout our career. How do you see the gamers collectively impacting the future of the industry? Well, one of the things we've realized is more people are gaming as they grow up, and therefore people are smarter about our industry. They're smarter about games and the impact of games, and they're very open to games as part of a future. And so I, I think whereas the traditional view has been negative about games, what we find is particularly with either young policymakers or young staffers, like they get games. And that's true across the board within various parts of our community. So I think games are going to be able to play more of a role, whether it's education, you know, you're even seeing it being used in companies in onboarding new employees. I think UPS onboards its new drivers using VR headsets so they can visualize things in a simulated world and you don't have to get out on the road. So more and more, you're beginning to see how astronauts 
train through simulations that are video game based before they go to the International Space Station. So the future that we can imagine for education, for transportation, for everything around us, I think is going to be shaped by people who played games and see its value as another language, right? So it's not going to be this thing that's apart or different, but it's going to be another opportunity, another platform. It doesn't have to be the sole one, but it'll be one of the activations for knowledge sharing and for information distribution. Taking over the world. <laughs> Listen, Ready Player One is probably the future we're all going towards anyway. It's a little ways down the line, but it's a fascinating one to think about how video games overall and how the technology in particular is being used by so many other industries. VR has definitely gone in directions I don't think anybody who started VR gaming thought that it would go. And it's been really also interesting watching AR evolve as a technology as well. Obviously, policy and software is a big part of what the ESA does. How much do you guys get involved with like the hardware process? It feels like it might be siloed, but do you guys kind of mix it up and do it all? So for us, we tend to focus on the policy around anything in the game ecosystem and really trying to allow innovators and creators to experiment, to try different things. And so if it's involved in games in some way, we tend to at least have an understanding of it and advocate for more innovation-friendly policies. We don't get involved, obviously, in creating games or creating the technology, but we do want to keep up with it. And the more it veers to games, the more engaged we are. And so on VR, on AR, you know, I actually... <laughs> I think early on in my tenure at ESA, I had to testify before a Senate committee on AR technology because they were trying to figure out the limits of it and where it might apply in different spheres. And so I think there are a lot of members of Congress who love technology, but also want to make sure that it gets innovated in a way that's friendly to consumers. And we were there to really reassure them that although the technology was in its earliest phases, it was being done in a way that would really advance a consumer interest, which is having fun and being able to engage in the world around. But it, it's been interesting to see how different people at the state and federal level engage with technology because they're both consumers of it, but they also want to make sure that it impacts people in a positive way. And so we're there to help explain whatever we can. Yes, we need to get more gamers in Congress. I think that's going to be a big hurdle for us going forward. I remember during the pandemic, during like the last election cycle, AOC was streaming a lot on Twitch, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. It was like this big movement of a younger politician kind of connecting with this audience that has really felt ignored and abandoned by a lot of older politicians. And I thought it was really great to see like, yes, we care about political issues. We care about our communities and what's happening with our local lawmakers and, you know, the ones in Washington as well. Is that something that you guys have noticed as well, that this younger generation of politicians coming in is more aware of the gaming industry and the issues that face the industry and the people who are in it? Absolutely. I think both young policymakers who are in office, but also the staffers for different policymakers are definitely aware of games. But one of the things we also do is connect games to people who don't think they're connected to them. Here's what I mean. So there's a 65-year-old senator from Oklahoma, and we were chatting and I asked if anyone in his life plays games. He says, no, 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 no. I don't play games. But since I'm an old Air Force pilot, every night when I get home, I need an hour on my Xbox simulator just to navigate a little bit, just to calm down before I start the day. And my wife <laughs> plays I love that. Candy Crush every night just for an hour before she goes to bed. Just but they're to calm not down. gamers. But they're not gamers. Not gamers. No. Yeah. no. So, and then you, know, you could see like mid-sentence him going, huh. 
right. So if you use the word gamer, it means one thing, but if you just play playing games, that's another. And then as you talk about, you know, because something like 75% of households have some kind of gaming device, console of some sort, there's someone in their family, a kid, a grandkid, a cousin, there's someone in, in the household or nearby who plays games. And when you have that piece of the conversation first, it disarms everyone because they just think about the joy. There's actually a senator from Delaware, Chris Coons, who uh, was sharing with me. He had to clear out his home office, and so he took his Atari to the office at work because he didn't really want to throw it out. No, it's and, a piece of history. Yeah, and so it became known that he was a gamer, and he's actually, and he will sometimes go online and get his the ability to marry others, mm. and he has married people with a theme of video games. Like so, I mean, it's like you know, it's yeah. one of these things where it's like random hallway conversation, and you realize, huh. We have a senator who's married people who were gamers, and he used a lot of video game themes to betroth them. I feel like that's like becoming a marriage officiant who only specializes in video game themed weddings seems like a really good business to start. I think we need to stop this podcast, Andrea. I think we have a new business ahead of us. Thank you, Stan. We'll give you like 10% commission. I love that. I think it reminds people that video games aren't this stigmatized thing. And it's something that Brittany and I talk about on our show quite a bit, the idea of who is a gamer, who gets to call themselves a gamer, what is the gaming community, and how there is no one right answer to that question. And, you know, I've also had conversations with people about how I personally want to, like, take the word gamer back because it had such negative connotations for so long. But being a gamer has brought me so much joy and brings so many other people so much joy. And we connect with people and you know, the, one of the stats from the essential facts that we talked about on our show about how 50% of people have met, you know, a friend or, or a spouse, partner, significant other, like through video games and how powerful that number is. And I think it's always so fascinating, you know, hearing more stories about people who clearly love to play games, but oh, no, 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 I'm not in the gaming community and I don't want to be a gamer. It's like, but why not? It is interesting. That word elicits something very specific in people's minds because whether you call it Hollywood or whomever, they've characterized people who love playing games in a specific way. So we found that when you use that word, you get a different response than do you play games or do you enjoy playing games? Completely different response. Although there's like this interesting stat that, you know, it isn't our report, but I remember looking at essentially something like for women 45 and older, at least a third of them consider themselves gamers, like when you say the word gamer, which I thought was kind of an interesting, you know, like, okay. We're taking over. Yeah, they're owning, they're owning the word. As you should, I have noticed, you know, I started becoming active in the video game community in 2009. And it was always that thing of like, oh, you play video games? Oh, you play video games? I have to say, I really don't get that anymore. And yeah. granted, I don't have a lot of human interaction. Usually if it's like, I'm, if I'm in an Uber going somewhere, I'll be like, oh, you know, do you play video games? And usually it's like, oh, you know, I used to play Call of Duty or I used to play Fortnite, but I'm busy. I have kids now, but it's never, I don't ever get that response of like, what? You're a woman yeah. and you play games. So I've noticed that's been whatever we're doing. I feel like maybe becoming more vocal, like Andrea said, taking it back, you know, is uh, it's really helping. From your guys' end, though, do you, are you doing, do you have any active campaigns to take the name back? Or is that just kind of like a happy byproduct of the work you do already? I think it's part of the work that we do because I think for us, however you enter the portal of games, we're excited right? And however you want to define it, you know, there was this moment in time, and maybe it's still around where people felt like, well, if you're playing mobile games, you're not a real gamer. Oh, I, I hate that. that. Right? Yeah. 
And some people yeah. still say that. Well, one of the things we found is that only 12% of people only play video games on a mobile phone. Something like 68% or some other percent play with various other devices, which means people who are playing games on mobile are also playing on other devices. And so it's this misnomer about where games are. But obviously, you know, if you're taking the subway to work, you know, you're going to have your mobile device. You're not going to whip out your laptop. Or when, these days, you can take your Switch. And I, by the way, I thank the people at Nintendo for creating a rechargeable device, you know, particularly for <laughs> awesome. my subway travel. I love being able to plug it in <laughs> and continue playing, uh, whether you're on the train or uh, on a plane. But we don't necessarily focus on any one word because everyone brings to it what they want. What's mm -hmm. important to us is if you're enjoying what you're doing and if it's bringing joy to your life, then that's the testimony we want to elicit. We love that message. I do want to shift a little bit and talk about some of the broader things that the ESA does because, you know, Brittany and I on our show, of course, have talked about the ESA in the past and a lot of the connotations, as you're very aware, are around E3, but that's not what the bulk of what the ESA does. So we've, as a community of gamers, have been watching quite a few different big legal battles happen in the video games industry over the last couple of years. Some of them are internal and some of them are external. And I would love to hear from you as somebody who oversees all of this and is kind of like the head of the body that is the liaison for the industry to government here in the United States. Now, what are some of the big issues that the video games industry is going up against right now that gamers should be paying attention to? We spent a lot of time in the halls of Congress and in courts defending the right to make games. And we were really fortunate to win those claims in a 2011 decision by the U.S. Supreme Court. And so the issue regarding the impact of video games on society, as well as First Amendment rights, was resolved. And over the years, we've been, you know, humanizing the industry for folks. I think today, the areas of focus are in our roots, which is we're an intellectual property industry and we're a technology industry. So we, we share this common lineage of people who create the games and therefore are subject to the intellectual property laws, but also create the devices on which the games are played. And that's both console, online, you name it. And that's more the technology front. So a lot of the issues we face are in one of those two buckets. And they can range from copyright protection, international trade, to technology protections. One of the biggest things we're addressing right now is how do you distinguish what games are from social media? We've seen a lot of issues surrounded around the impact of social media on society. And we all obviously use social media for a number of reasons and a lot of positive ones. But we also want to make sure that policymakers understand the difference between social media and games, what those communications are about, what the goals are about games, what that end result is. And oftentimes we'll find that when they try to legislate something that raises a level of concern, they will have overbroad regulation. So a large part of our job is explaining what it is we do, the safeguards we have, and why we should be really viewed differently. So one of the reasons, obviously, is the ESRB, the Entertainment Software Rating Board, which provides ratings and information to parents. The other thing is one of the hallmarks of our industry today is that trust and safety is not a competitive issue. It's a collaborative one because any view of a game as a problem really impacts all games. And we want regulators and consumers to know the importance of trust and safety. And so our company spent a lot of time trying to create tools that are either moderation or more digital in nature 
to protect consumers and to provide them with opportunities to raise their hands if there are issues, but also to be proactive around it. So we spent a lot of time not only distinguishing how games are different than social media, but also the kind of safeguards put into place within the industry so that we are protecting consumers. And that's critically important because if you don't have a, a safe environment, people aren't going to want to come to those communities and have fun. It's really critical to the growth of industry. We talked before around how 80% of people are playing games together in person or online. That doesn't happen if people don't trust the ecosystem. Absolutely. We are big fans of creating safe spaces. You know, it's been a big mission of ours here at What's Good Games. And it's been so reassuring to see the platforms taking a bigger role in their responsibility to manage the platform and provide people with tools. And I've always, you know, it's been an unenviable position to have to be someone like Xbox managing their live platform and being like, how do we curb toxicity in our chat rooms? You know, just a couple of weeks ago, they put out the story about how they're having new tools for reporting and things like that. And, you know, I know PlayStation has their own initiatives they're doing around that as well. Given that that is something that's technically underneath their, you know, umbrella and it's basically their responsibility. Do you guys as a, a body that has access to, you know, other people's uh, research and data around, you know, how they can make it better, get involved with that? Or do you kind of wait until they come to you? It's a combination. I mean, obviously, as the proprietors of that network, whether it's Xbox or PlayStation or Nintendo, you know, they put a lot of safeguards in, but we also convene them and others who might have other parts of an ecosystem, talk and share information around what's working and are there threats in common or are they separate for each system? When a policymaker has a, has a concern from a constituent or they have their own concerns that they're seeing, they don't really care which system it is. What they care about is something happening to a member of the public and how do we protect that person? So we will spend time convening companies to talk about what's going on in the space. And for us, it's not less about like what technology are you using and let's dictate that thing. It's more about learning what is possible and how we get there. Because, you know, as soon as you get one fix, a bad actor is looking to stymie you with some other attack, some other way of getting around the system. And so it's a constant game of improvement. That's what we're working with companies on is how do you maintain that level of excellence and keep improving in the face of bad actors who are trying to get around your systems. Do you find that there are people in positions of power who want the ESA to go away and want to get their grubby little hands on the video game industry? <laughs> <laughs> I think that there are policymakers and other organizations who have a legitimate concern about what they see in the online ecosystem generally, and they really want everyone's act to get better, right? They really want everyone to uplift their game. One of the things we stress is that we've been the leaders for years. In fact, when the Federal Trade Commission looks at entertainment industries and what they've been doing in terms of protecting children and providing safety for users online, we're always the gold standard, right? It doesn't mean that it's perfect or that we don't have a ways to go because you can never stop working hard on consumer safety. But we put our best foot forward better than anyone else does because we care about community. You know, when we're putting a game out, it has to appeal to people who love the game and love the characters or will soon learn to love them. It's different than other mediums where you're putting out a work and 
it may or may not appeal to this group, but it might make money overseas or wherever it is. Like if the community doesn't accept and love and cherish the game, it's not going to be a success. And there's so much investment that goes into games these days that you want to make sure that it's a fun game, but you also want to make sure people feel safe in playing the game. So a lot goes into making these games and making sure that they're as safe as possible. One of the things we talked to Pat about, Pat Vance, the head of the ESRB, was about why they as a team are successful at what they do. And it's because she said that her team is full of passionate gamers who actually love the industry and care about the developers and care about the games that they get to work on. And I think that was such a, a powerful message. Do Because what the ESA does is both specialized but also broad, do you guys also have that kind of tight-knit gaming community or because you need so many like legal experts and people who are coming from other fields to provide that really important perspective that it's a little bit more mixed? It's a big mix. It's a big mix of people. There have been times here where the controller has to be replaced every month because too many people are gaming. <laughs> then there are other <laughs> so it, it, it kind of ebbs and flows and, and, you know, depending on what cycle you are in the game release. We always have had a wide mix of people because you need different skill sets. See, you know, I've been playing Street Fighter lately. So you need your Chun-Li, you need your Eonor, you need your DJ, you need all the different super uh, sets of skills in order nice. to to address you crush the that. we have. And, and by the way, <laughs> we run a bipartisan team because we are dealing with politicians of every stripe when we deal on the political side. But you also need people who can reach out to various communities because if we're working with a lot of third-party organizations, we want them to know that we care about what they're doing also because we try to be organic in how we form relationships. But we do have a lot of gamers here, but it can be a mix of, of people who love games or people who love policy. But what everyone shares a passion for is the growth of games and all the areas around them. So when I talked before about intellectual property and technology, pretty much everyone is a fan of those areas of law or policy, and that helps fuel the interest in games. And then you can't help but start to play games. I remember we did a Mario Kart tournament like early in my tenure here, and uh, someone who reported to me at the time when I was general counsel decided that she was really going to beat me. So she practiced, but didn't tell me. And oh, she practiced I love in the form that. Of F <laughs> so I got knocked out in the first round. I was really yeah. mad. And it revealed that she had been trained by like a guy who goes and like, you know, wins tournaments. It's all about the drift. Once you get real serious at Mario Kart, you got to get real good at drifting. Yeah. yeah. He also knew that I wasn't good on the like upside down courses. Like I get a little thrown by those. And so he kind of helped her set up. So you have no one to blame but yourself. The fix <laughs> right. was in and I, I should, you know, never again though, never again. <laughs> That's amazing. We would catch nothing but heats from our fans if we had the president of the ESA on and didn't ask, Stan, what is happening with E3? We were so sad. Brittany and I sometimes feel like we are like the most vocal cheerleaders for, for E3 and having so many wonderful, positive experiences. And there are some naysayers out there that are like, E3 is dead. And we're like, you shut up, you. It's not. We had to ask. We're hoping to bring it back in an exciting way. I don't have any news to break. But what I'll say is this. E3 is special to all of us, and it means something. I mean, it's very founding was the opportunity for games to be uplifted on their own. Games used to be celebrated as part of a different consumer show, and year after year, games were treated with less respect, and E3 was an opportunity to really uplift games on their own. And what E3 showed was that games could not only stand on their own, but flourish and create their own drama. So 
a lot of people, when they think about E3s, it's not just the cool games, but the announcements, the rivalries, the waiting till next year. We definitely want to bring it back. We just want to make bring it back in a way that understands and honors the current marketplace. You know, E3 was still popular going into COVID, but during COVID, companies started marketing differently. And so how do you captivate the new ways of marketing while also honoring the fact that people want to convene? One of the things we've seen is that no one has drawn as many people together in a physical space in the same way that E3 did. There are bigger shows, but to bring the level of people E3 would bring in together just hasn't been matched. And in terms of the reach, no one's done the same in terms of global reach as E3 for that sustained period of time for those, you know, three or four days. What we've got to do is make sure we modernize it and bring it back in a way that's exciting for both the fans who are viewing it, but also the exhibitors who are coming. And so we're continuing to work away at getting to that perfect balance. We love E3. We want to bring it back and we're going to continue to work hard and and get it right. So people are really excited when it does come back. I'll be there day one, man. I'll be there hoping for a new Resident Evil, my Final Fantasy IX remake, a new Yakuza (laughs) game. Let's go. I mean, we have so many fond memories and Britt and I often trade stories about key moments during our careers about an E3 or a moment that stood out. Do you have a particular moment from a past E3 that you always kind of go back to as like, that was really cool? So when I first joined ESA in 2015, I had heard about E3, but I hadn't been to one until I got here. And I would say like, there was just so much. There's a lot that happens all at once. So I remember you know, after the first day of walking the floor and just trying to soak it in, trying to really focus on a, a few announcements and a few games. And there were some Warner Brothers games that were coming out that year. And there were some cool things where I got to do smaller tours. I just remember how overwhelming that first one was of just everything at once. You know, you had the Sony booth next to the Xbox booth. And, oh, yeah. You know, it's just, there was just a lot. So my memory is just being overwhelmed the first day and saying, okay, you're going to have to take this in pieces. It's kind of like <laughs> that first time you're at a big party and you're like, okay, how do I navigate and make this smaller sections of a room rather than this enormity? You um, don't. I, you just suffer. <laughs> and you get blisters on your feet. And you trek back and forth between the South and the West Hall more times in a single day because you didn't coordinate your appointments in one hall or the other. I, I did all those things. I did all those things <laughs> back and forth. But I think by like the third one, I'd figured out like how to manage that. And I think part of it is you're not going to get to do and see everything, even as someone, who, and, and at the time, I was general counsel, but when I became president and CEO, I could have, you know, much, much more simple access to things. But even then I realized, get to know the things you can, get that overview. Because what E3 provided really for companies was that enormous first step in marketing, right? It was creating the lift for what they were going to be pushing out for the rest of the year. And you began to see those rhythms and see where it is. It's almost like Daytona 500 is the Super Bowl in reverse, right? It's the start of the season that kicks it off as opposed to Super Bowl, which is the end of the season. The E3 was the mark, the demarcation of what was to come that you would then see in other shows and different outlets. And so understanding that this was the takeoff of this enormous rocket ship for our industry was really special to really witness and be a part of. We will again, but we will get there. So it's the not right dead. Way. I was about to grab my shovel and dig up a grave and perform a necromancy skill to bring it back, but now I won't have to. (laughs) I wondered how long it'd be before we got to necromancy. (laughs) I mean, listen, zombies always have to make it in. Well, Stan, this has been a joy to talk to you finally and to get you on the show. But before we let you go, do you have anything left from, you know, what we've been talking about that you want to make sure to kind of send people on their way with either 
about, you know, who the ESA is or what your guys' mission is or even somewhere where they can go to learn more? Yeah, I would urge people to go to theesa.com, T-H-E-E-S-A.com, to get a copy of the Essential Facts Report. It has a lot of information that's available that people can use every day in their lives, but also to get a sense of who we are as an industry. I think the other thing is for everyone to really view themselves as an advocate. You're an advocate for games. And when you're out there, whether you're playing games, talking to people about games, overhearing people talking in, in, about games, that engagement's gonna be really important because you know we can be our best advocates as an industry. And I think that can be anything from using the data, but also just telling people about the impact it's had on your life. There's so many times where we're having conversations and people talk about the impact of a game or a character or the connection with someone through a game. And I think that can really be special and powerful. And it's different. It's intimate for people because you're playing the games you love. You're spending that time and you're playing with people who share a passion for a game, a character, and you can't get that anywhere else. It is interactive. And I think people should understand that that's a special, unique thing about games that's different than the other art forms. No more or less than the others, but it's different. And it's that uniqueness that I think brings us together and bonds us to games. Hell yeah. Amen to that. Well, thank you again so much for being on the show. Like he said, theesa.com. We will make sure that that link is in the show notes if you guys want to go check out the essential facts for yourself. And we're going to keep our eyes peeled for when E3 makes its triumphant comeback. Thanks so much, Stan. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you so much again to Stan for taking time out of his busy schedule to talk with Britt and I. Britt, was he everything you thought he would be when we set up that interview? Because I know you had never met him in person before. Never met him before, but it turns out he listens to the show. So he knew me. So that was great for me. So I knew I could just be my normal weird self and didn't have to act up. Because, you know, when you hear president CEO of ESA, you think of some stuffy man in a business suit, right? He is definitely not that. So that was really, really nice. He was a lovely person to talk to. You're really, really funny, too. And yeah, I'd love to talk to him more. Very, very smart individual who really has a great grasp of what's going on in the industry and trends. And I could pick his brain for hours, I feel like. Yeah, absolutely. Stan, if you're listening, please come back and be on the show again. I know Rihanna was sad that she couldn't be at the interview. So we got to get you back so we can all be there. And that's it, everybody. That's the end of the show. Another long one. It's been a while since we've had a lengthy episode of What's Good Game. Keep games. it going. Keep it going. A lengthy girthy. You know, I was going to say a big boy, but then I was like, oh, is that too on the nose? Mm-hmm. Too on the nose? Uh, Depends on how you say boy. it. No, I don't think. Yeah, that's true. Oh, yeah. That's true. How would you say How do you say it, Ray? How would you like say it? Like a big boy. <laughs> oh, yeah. And that's why she's pregnant, everyone. Oh, <laughs> there it is. All right, everybody. Enjoy your weekend. We'll see you next time. Bye.